Before we get started, before any of this starts, I'd like to remind you that you can experience an ad-free version of this by clicking the link in the description that says plus.acast.com slash s slash Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Exurgat Deus dispentur dimitri eius. Et fugiancio derenteum afacia eius. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. And let all those who hate him flee from before his face. <clears throat> I want to read an article from Zero Hedge entitled An Age of Decay. And there's a few things that I want to kind of hone in on in this article. And we'll talk about once I'm done reading it. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. Let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta Michael Arcangel, defende nos in proelio. Contra nequitiam et insidias diabolias do praesidium. Imperatili Deus supplicas de precamur, duque princeps militae calestis, satana maliosque spiritus malignos, que ad peditionem animarum, pervegantur in mundo divina virtute, in infernum detrude. Amen. Cor Jesus Sacratissimum miserere nobis, Mater Dolorosa, ora pro nobis. Beatus Carolus e Domo Austriae, ora pro nobis. Domine, ostende facem tuum et salvi erimus, Ave Maria Purissima, Immaculata Conceptio Est. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Like I said, the article's title is An Age of Decay. It was authored by Chris Buskirk, uh, through American Greatness, and it's featured on Zero Hedge. <clears throat> it, the essay is adapted from America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay by Chris Buskirk. <clears throat> Apparently it's 192 pages and uh, $28.99. The fact that American living standards have broadly stagnated and for some segments of the population have declined should be a cause for real concern to the ruling class. America ran out of frontier when we hit the Pacific Ocean, and that changed things. Alaska and Hawaii were too far away to figure in most people's aspirations, and so for decades, it was the West Coast states, and especially California, that represented dreams and possibilities in the national imagination. The American dream reached its apotheosis in California. 
After World War II, the state became our collective tomorrow. But today, it looks more like a future that the rest of the country should avoid. A place where a few coastal enclaves have grown fabulously wealthy while everyone else falls further and further behind. After World War II, California led the way on every front. The population was growing quickly as people moved to the state in search of opportunity and young families had children. The economy was vibrant and diverse. Southern California benefited from the presence of defense contractors. San Diego was a Navy town, and demobilized GIs returning from the Pacific Front decided to stay and put down roots. Between 1950 and 1960, the population of the Los Angeles metropolitan area swelled from 4,046,000 to 6,530,000. Jet Propulsion Laboratory was inaugurated in the 1930s by researchers at the California Institute of Technology. One of the founders, Jack Parsons, became a prominent member of an occult sect in the 1940s based in Pasadena that, pa that practiced thelemic magic. For those of you who are unfamiliar with thelemic magic, this is the magic of Aleister Crowley. <clears throat> in ceremonies called Babylon Working. L. Ron Hubbard, the, the founder of Scientology, was an associate of Parsons and rented rooms in his homes. The counterculture, or rather countercultures, had deep roots in the state. Youth cult culture was born in California, arising out of a combination of rapid growth, the baby boom, the general absence of extended families, plentiful sunshine, the car culture, and the space afforded by newly built suburbs where teenagers could be relatively free from adult supervision. Tom Wolfe memorably described this era in his 1963 essay, The Candy-Colored Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby. The student protest movement began in California, too. In 1960, hundreds of protesters, many from the University of California at Berkeley, sought to disrupt a hearing of the House Un-American Activities Committee in the San Francisco City Hall. The police turned fire hoses on the crowd and arrested over 30 students. The baby boomers may have inherited the protest movement, but they didn't create it. Its founders were part of the silent generation. Clark Kerr, the president of the University of California system, who earned a reputation for giving student protesters what they wanted, was from the greatest generation. Something in California, and in America, had already changed. California was a sea of ferment during the 1960s, a turbulent brew of contrasting trends. As Tom Neal described it, quote, the state was the epicenter of the summer of love, but it had also seen the ascent of Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. It had seen the Watts riots, the birth of the anti-war movement, and the Altamont concert disaster, the free speech movement, and the Hells Angels. Here, defense contractors, cold warriors, and nascent tech companies lived just down the road from hippie communes, lovins, and surf shops. Hollywood was the entertainment capital of the world, producing a vision of peace and prosperity that it sold to interior America and to the world as the beau ideal of the American exper experiment. It was a prosperous life centered around the nuclear family living in a single-family home in the burgeoning suburbs. Doris Day became America's sweetheart through a series of romantic comedies, but the turbulence in her own life foreshadowed America's turn from vitality to decay. She was married three times, and her first husband either embezzled or mismanaged her substantial fortune. Her son, Terry Melcher, was closely associated with Charles Manson and the family, along with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, avatars of the California lifestyle that epitomized the American dream. 
The Manson family spent the number, summer of 1968 living and partying with Wilson in his Malibu mansion. The Cielo Drive home in the Hollywood Hills where Sharon Tate and four others were murdered in August 1969 had been Melcher's home and the site of parties that Manson attended. The connections between Doris Day's son, the Beach Boys, and the, Man and the Manson family have a darkly prophetic valence in retrospect. They were young, good-looking, and carefree. But behind the clean-cum image of wholesome American youth was a desperate decadence fueled by titanic drug abuse, sexual outrages that were absurd even by the standards of Hollywood in the 1960s, and self-destructiveness clothed in the language of pseudo-spirituality. The California culture of the 1960s now looks like the fin de siècle blow-off top. The promise, fulfillment, and destruction of the American dream appears distilled in the Golden State, like an epic tragedy played out against a sunny landscape where the frontier ended. Around 1970, America entered into an age of decay, and California was the vanguard. The expectation of constant progress is deeply ingrained in our understanding of the world and of America in particular. Some metrics do generally keep rising. Gross domestic product mostly goes up, and so does the stock market. According to those barometers, things must be headed mostly in the right direction. Surely there are temporary setbacks. The economy has recessions, the stock market has corrections, but the long-term trajectory is upward. Are those metrics telling us that the country is growing more prosperous? Are they signals or noise? There is much that the GDP and the stock market don't tell us about, such as public and private debt levels, wage trends, and wealth concentration. In fact, during a half century in which the reported GDP grew consistently and the stock market reached the stratosphere, real rate wages have crept up very slowly and living standards have flatlined or even declined for the middle and working classes. Many Americans have a feeling that things aren't going in the right direction or that the country has lost its societal health and vigor, but aren't sure how to describe or measure the problem. We need broader metrics of national prosperity and vitality, including measures of non-economic values like family stability or social trust. There are many different criteria for national vitality. First, is the country guarded against foreign aggression and at peace with itself? Are people secure in their homes, free from government harassment, and safe from violent crime? Is prosperity broadly shared? Can the average person get a good job, buy a house, and support a family without doing anything extraordinary? Are families growing? Are people generally healthy? And is the lifespan increasing or at least not decreasing? Is social trust high? Do people have a sense of unity and a common destiny and purpose? Is there a high capacity for collective action? Are people happy? We can, sort of, we can sort quantifiable metrics of vitality into three main categories, social, economic, and political. There's a spiritual element, too, which for my purposes falls under the social category. The social factors that can readily be measured include things like age at first marriage, an indicator of optimism about the future, median adult stature, is it rising or declining, life expectancy, and prevalence of disease. Economic measure, measures include real wage trends, wealth concentration, and social mobility. Political metrics relate to, to polarization and acts of political violence. And many of these tend to move together over long periods of time. It's easy to look at an individual metric and miss the forest for the trees, not seeing how one, it's one manifestation of a larger problem in a dynamic system. 
Solutions proposed to deal with one concern may cause unexpected new problems in another part of the system. It's a society-wide game of whack-a-mole. What, what's needed is a more comprehensive understanding of the structural trends and what lies behind them. From the founding period in America up until about 1830, those factors were generally improving. Life expectancy and median height were increasing, both indicating a society that was mostly at peace and had plentiful food. Real wages roughly tripled during this period as labor growth was slow, or excuse me, as labor supply growth was slow. There was some political violence, but for decades after independence, the country was largely at peace and the citizens were secure in their homes. There was an overarching sense of shared purpose in building a new nation. Those indicators of vitality are no longer trending upward. Let's start with life expectancy. There is a general impression that up until the last century, people died very young. There's an element of truth to this. We are now less susceptible to death from infectious disease, especially in early childhood, than when our ancestors before than were our ancestors before the 20th century. Childhood mortality rates were appalling in the past, but burying a young child is now a rare tragedy. This is a very real form of progress, resulting from more reliable food supplies as a result of improvements in agriculture, better, better sanitation in cities, and medical advances, particularly the antibiotics and certain vaccines introduced in the first half of the 20th century. A period of rapid progress was then followed by a long period of slow, expensive improvement at the margins. <clears throat> when you factor out childhood mortality, Lifespans have not grown by much in the past century or two. A study in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine says that in mid-Victorian England, life expectancy at age 5 was 75 for men and 73 for women. In 2016, according to the Social Security Administration, the American male life expectancy was at, age five, at age 5 was 71.53, which means living to age 76 and a half. Once you've made it to five years, your life expectancy is not much different from your great-grandfather's. Moreover, Pliny tells us that Cicero's wife, Terentia, lived to 103. Eleanor of Aquitaine, queen of both France and England at different times in the 12th century, died a week shy of her 82nd birthday. A study of 298 famous men born before 100 BC who were not murdered, killed in battle, or died by suicide found that their average age of death was 71. More striking is that people who live completely outside of modern civilization without Western medicine today have life expectancies roughly comparable to our own. Daniel Lieberman, biological, biological anthropologist at Harvard, notes that foragers who survive the precarious first few years of infantry are most likely to live to be 68 to 78 years old. In some ways, they are healthier in old age than the average American, with lower incidences of inflammatory diseases like diabetes and arterial sclerosis. It should be no surprise that an active life spent outside in the sun, eating wild game and forage plants, produces good health. Recent research shows that not only are we not living longer, we're less healthy and less mobile during the last decades of our lives than our great-grandfathers were. This points to a decline in overall health. We have new drugs to treat type 1 diabetes, but there is more type 1 diabetes than in the past. We have new treatments for cancer, but there is more cancer. Something has gone very wrong. What's more, between 2014 to and 2017, median American life expectancy declined every year. In 2017, it was 78.6 years, and then it decreased again between 2018 and 2020 to 76.87. 
The figure for 2020 includes COVID deaths, of course, but the trend was already headed downward for several years, mostly from deaths of despair and diseases associated with chronic alcoholism, drug overdoses, and suicide. The reasons for the increase in deaths of despair are complex, but a major contributing factor is economic. People without good prospects over an extended period of time are more prone to self-destructive behavior. This decline is in contrast to the experience of peer countries. In addition to life expectancy, other upward trends have stalled or reversed in the past few decades. Family formation has slowed. The total fertility rate has dropped to well below replacement level. Real wages have stagnated. Debt levels have soared. Social mobility has stalled and income inequality has grown. Material conditions for most people have improved little, except in narrow parts of life, such as entertainment. Trends, aggregate, and individuals. <clears throat> the last several decades have been a story of losing ground for much of middle America, away from a handful of wealthy cities on the coasts. The optimistic story that's been told uh, that's been told is that both income and wealth have been rising, and that's true in the aggregate. But when those numbers are broken down, the pictures, the picture is one of a rising wage gap, a rising gap between a small group of winners and a larger group of losers. Real wages have remained essentially flat over the last 50 years, and the growth in national wealth has been heavily concentrated at the top. The chart below represents a share of national income that went up that went to the top 10% of earners in the United States. In 1970, it was 33.3%. In 2019, it was 45.4%. Disparities in wealth have become more closely tied to educational attainment. Between 1989 and 2019, household wealth grew for, the mo for the most for those with the highest level of education. For, how, for households with grad, a graduate degree, the increase was 31%. With a college degree, was 17%. With a high school degree, about 4%. Meanwhile, household wealth declined by a precipitous 60% for high school drop, dropouts, including those with a GED. In 1989, households with a college degree had 2.74 times the wealth of those only with a high school diploma. In 2012, it was 3.08 times as much. In 1989, households with a graduate degree had 4.85 times the wealth of the high school group. In 2019, it was 6.2 times as much. The gap between the graduate degree group and the college group increased by 12%. The high school's group wealth grew about 4% from 1989 to 2019. The college group's uh, college group's wealth grew about 17%, and the graduate degree group, 31%. <clears throat> the gaps between the groups are growing in real dollars. It's true that people have some control over the level of education they attain, but college has become costlier, and it is fundamentally unnecessary for many jobs, so the growing wealth disparity by education is a worrying trend. Wealth is relative. If your wealth grew by 4% while that of another group increased by 17%, then you are poorer. What's more crucial, however, is purchasing power. If the costs of middle-class staples like healthcare, housing, and college tuition are climbing sharply while wages stagnate, 
then living standards will decline. More problematic than the growing wealth disparity in itself is diminished economic mobility. A big part of the American story from the beginning has been that children tend to end up better off than their parents were. By most measures, that hasn't been true for decades. The chart below compares the birth cohorts of 1940 and 1980 in terms of earning more than their parents did. The horizontal axis indicates the relative income level of the parents. Among the older generation, over 90% earned more than their parents, except for those whose parents were at the very high end of the income scale. Among the younger generation, the percentages were much lower and also more variable. For those whose parents had a median income, only about 40% would do better. In this analysis, low growth and high inequality both suppress mobility. Over time, the declining economic mobility becomes an intergenerational problem as younger people fall behind the preceding generation in wealth accumulation. The graph below illustrates the proportion of national wealth by successive generations at the same stage of life, with the horizontal axis indicating the median age for the group. Baby boomers, birth years 40, uh, 46 to 64, owned a much larger percentage of the national wealth than the two succeeding generations at every point. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the median age of 45, for example, the boomers owned approximately 40% of the national wealth. At the same median age, Generation X owned about 15%. The boomer generation was 15 to 18% larger than Gen X, and it had 2.6 times as much of the national wealth. The millennial generation is bigger than Generation X, though a little smaller than the boomers, and it is owned about half of what Generation X did at the same median age. Those are some measurable indicators of a nation's vitality, and they tell us something is going wrong. A key reason for stagnant wages, declining mobility, and growing disparities of wealth is that economic growth overall has been sluggish since 1970. And the main reason for slower growth is that the long-term growth in productivity that created so much wealth for America and the world over for the prior two centuries slowed down. <clears throat> there are other ways to increase the overall national wealth. One is by acquiring new resources, which has been done in various ways, through territorial conquest or the incorporation of unsettled frontier lands, or the discovery of valuable resources already in a nation's territory, such as petroleum reserves in recent history. 
Getting an advantageous trade agreement can also be a way of increasing resources. Through much of American history, the frontier was a great source of new wealth. The vast supply of mostly free land, along with the other resources it held, was not just an economic boon, it also shaped American culture and politics in ways that were distinct from the long-settled European country, or long-settled countries of Europe, where the frontier had been closed for centuries and all the land was owned space. But there can be a downside to becoming overly dependent on any one resource. Aside from gaining re new resources, real economic growth comes from either population growth or productivity growth. Population growth can add to the national wealth, but it can also put a strain on supplies of essential resources. What elevates living standards broadly is productivity growth, making more out of available resources. A farmer who tills his, his fields with a steel plow pulled by a horse can cultivate more land than a farmer doing it by hand. It allows him to produce more food that can be consumed by a bigger family or the surplus can be sold or traded for other goods. A farmer driving a plow with an engine and reaping with a mechanical combine can produce even more. But productivity growth is driven by innovation. In the example above, there is a progression from farming by hand with a simple tool to the use of metal tools and animal power to the use of complicated machinery, each of which greatly increases the amount of food produced per farmer. This illustrates the basic truth that technology is a means of reducing scarcity and generating surpluses of essential goods. So labor and resources can be put toward other purposes and the whole population will be better off. Total factor productivity refers to economic output relative to the size of all primary inputs, namely labor and capital. Over time, a nation's economic output tends to grow faster than its labor force and capital stock. This might owe to better labor skills or capital management, but it is primarily the result of new technology. In economics, productivity growth is used as a proxy for the application of innovation. If productivity is rising, it is understood to mean that the applied science is working to reduce scarcity. The countries that lead in technological innovation naturally reap the benefits first and most broadly, and therefore have the highest living standards. Developing countries eventually get the technology too, and then enjoy the benefits in what is called catch-up growth. For example, China began its, its national electric electrification program in the 1950s, when electricity was nearly ubiquitous in the United States. The project took a few decades to complete, and China saw rapid growth as wide access to electric power increased productivity. The United States still leads the way in innovation, though now with more competition than at any time since World War II. But the development of productivity-enhancing new technologies has been slower over the past few decades than in any other comparable span of time since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the early 18th century. The obvious advances in a few specific areas, particular digital technology, are exceptions that prove the rule. Social technologies of recent years facilitate consumption rather than production. As a result, the growth in total factor productivity has been slow for a long time. According to a report from Rabobank, TFP growth deteriorated from an average annual growth of 1.1% over the period of 1969 to 2010 to 0.4% in 2010 to 2018. In The Great Stagnation, Tyler Cohen suggested that the conventional productivity measures may be misleading. For example, he noted productivity growth for 2000 and 2004 averaged 3.8%, a very high figure and an outlier relative to the most of the last half century. 
Surely some of that growth was real, owing to the growth of the internet at the time, but it also coincided with robust, robust growth in the financial sector, which ended very badly in 2008. We, what we measured as value creation may actually have been value destruction, namely too many homes and too much financial innovation of the wrong kind. Then productivity shot up by over 5% in 2009 to 2010, but Cohen found that it was mostly the result of firms firing the least productive people. That may have been good business, but it's not the same as productivity rising because innovation is reducing scarcity and thus leading to better living standards. Over the long term, when productivity growth slows or stalls, overall economic growth is sluggish. Median real wage growth is slow. For most people, living standards don't just stagnate, but decline. As productivity growth has slowed, the economy has become more financialized, which means that resources are increasingly channeled into means of extracting wealth from the productive economy instead of producing goods and services. Peter Thiel said that a simple way to understand financialization is that it represents the increasing influence of companies whose main business or source of value is producing little pieces of paper that essentially say, you owe me money. Wall Street and the companies that make up the financial sector have never been larger or more powerful. Since the early 1970s, financial firms' share of all corporate earnings has roughly doubled to nearly 25%. As a share of real GDP, it grew from 13 to 15% in the early 1970s to nearly 22% in 2020. The profits of financial firms have grown faster than their share of the economy over the, over the past half century. The examples are everywhere. Many companies that were built to produce real-world, non-digital goods and services have become stealth finance companies, too. General Electric, the manufacturing giant founded by Thomas Edison, transformed itself into a black box of finance businesses, dragging itself down as a result. The total market value of major airlines like American, uh, United, and Delta is less than the value of their loyalty programs in which people get miles by flying and by spending with airline-branded credit cards. In 2020, American Airlines' loyalty program was valued at 18 to $30 billion, while the market capitalization for the entire company was $14 billion. This suggests that the actual airline business, flying people from one place to another, is valuable only insofar as it gets people to participate in a loyalty program. The main result of this financialization is best explained by the Cantillon effect, which means that money creation over a long period of time redistributes wealth upward to the already rich. This effect was first described in the 18th century by Richard Cantillon after he observed the results of introducing a paper money system. He noted that the first people to receive the new money saw their incomes rise, while the last to receive it saw a decline in their purchasing power because of consumer price inflation. The first to receive newly created money are banks and other financial institutions. They are called Cantillon insiders, a, a term coined by Nick Sabo, and they get the most benefit. But all owners of assets, including stocks, real estates, and even a home, are enriched to some extent by the Cantillon effect. Those who own a lot of assets benefit the most, and financial assets tend to increase in value faster than other types, but all gain value. This is a version of the Matthew principle taken from Jesus' parable of the sower. Those who have, to those who have, more will be given. The more assets you own, the faster your wealth will increase. Meanwhile, 
The people without assets fall behind as assets prices rise faster than incomes. Inflation hawks have long worried that America's decades-long policy of running large government deficits, combined with easy money from the Fed, will lead to runaway inflation that beggars average Americans. This was seen clearly in 2022 after a massive increase in dollars created by the Fed in 2020 and 2021. Even so, they've mostly been looking for inflation in the wrong place. It's true that prices of many raw materials, such as lumber and corn, have soared recently, followed by a much more broad-based inflation in everything from food to rent. But inflation in the form of asset price bubbles have been with us for much longer. Those bubbles pop and prices drop, but the next bubble raises them even higher. Asset price inflation benefits asset owners, but not the people with few or no assets like young people just starting out and finding themselves unable to afford to buy a home. The Cantillon effect has been one of the many main vectors of increased wealth concentration over the last 40 years. One way that the large banks use their insider status is by getting short-term loans from the Federal Reserve and then lending the money back to the government by buying longer-term treasuries at a slightly higher interest rate and locking in a profit. Their position in the economy essentially guarantees them profits and their size and political influence protect them from losses. We've seen the pattern of private profits and public losses clearly in the savings and loan crisis of the 80s and in the financial crisis of 2008. Banks and speculators made a lot of money in the years leading up to the crisis, and when the losses on their bad loans came due, they got bailouts. The Cantillon economy creates moral hazard in that large companies, especially financial institutions, can privatize profits and socialize losses. Insiders and shareholders, more broadly, can reap massive gains when the bets they make with the company's capital pay off. When the bets go bad, the company gets bailed out. Alan Kruger, chief economist at the Treasury Department in the Obama administration, explained years later why banks and not homeowners were rescued from the fallout of the mortgage crisis. Quote, It would have been extremely unfair and created problems down the road to bail out homeowners who were irresponsible and took on homes they couldn't afford. Close quote. Kruger glossed over the fact that the banks had used predatory and deceptive practices to initiate risky loans, and when they lost hundreds of billions of dollars, or trillions by some estimates, they were bailed out while homeowners were kicked out. That callous indifference alienates and radicalizes the forgotten men and women who have been losing ground. And in truth, as I was reading that, that paragraph, I could not help but get angry myself. Most people know about the big bailouts in 2008, but the system that joins private profit from so with socialized losses regularly creates incentives for sloppiness and corruption. The greed sometimes takes ridiculous forms, but once that culture takes over, it poisons everything it touches. Starting in 2002, for example, Wells Fargo began a scam in which it paid employees to open more than 3.5 million unauthorized checking accounts, savings accounts, and credit cards for retail customers. By exaggerating growth in the number of active retail accounts, the bank could give investors a false picture of the health of its retail business. It also charged those customers monthly service fees, which contributed to the bottom line and bolstered the numbers in quarterly earnings reports to Wall Street. Bigger profits led to higher stock prices, enriching senior executives whose compensation packages included large option grants. John Stumpf, 
The company's CEO from 2007 to 2016 was forced to resign and disgorge about $40 million in repayments to Wells Fargo and fines to the federal government. Bloomberg estimates he retained more than $100 million. Wells Fargo paid a $3 billion fine, which amounted to less than two months of profit, as the bank's annual profits averaged $19.7 billion from 2017 to 2019, and this was a scam that lasted nearly 15 years. What is perhaps most absurd and despicable about this scheme is that Wells Fargo was conducting it during and even after the credit bubble when the bank received billions of dollars in bailouts from the government. The alliance between the largest corporations in the state leads to corrupt and abusive practices. This is one of the second-order effects of the Cantillon economy. Another effect is that managers respond to short-term financial incentives in a way that undermines long-term vitality of their own company. An excessive, uh, by the way, actually, before I go too much further, this is the reason why I refuse to work to any work with any IPO. There is not going to be a point in time where I ever work with an with an, a publicly traded company, because a publicly traded company produces this exact effect. Let me carry on. Another effect is that managers respond to short-term financial incentives in a way that undermines the long-term vitality of their own company. An excessive focus on quarterly earnings is sometimes referred to as short-termism. Senior managers, especially at the C-suite level of public companies, are largely compensated with stock options, so they have a strong incentive to see the stock rise. In principle, a rising stock price should reflect a healthy, growing, profitable company. Let me interject right here. However, what usually ends up happening is that if an industry is not growing, then the C-suite managers have a tendency to dig down into the company and try to cut out as much of what they call fluff, the non-productive people, as possible. Try to reduce the costs, the overhead of running the business, and by and in so doing, manage to increase the profits while not actually increasing the size of the market share for the company and not actually creating a bigger, more robust, and more healthy company, but rather eviscerating the bones of the company, which, over time, will receive extra money to keep it afloat. The side effect is, is that a solid aviation company that had good growth would eventually turn into America, Delta, and United, who make more money from their loyalty programs than they make from actually flying their aircraft. <clears throat> Continuing from the article. In principle, a rising stock price should reflect a healthy, growing, profitable company. But managers figured out how to game the system. With the Fed keeping long-term rates low, corporations can borrow money at a much lower rate than the expected return in the stock market. Many companies have taken on long-term debt to finance stock repurchases, which helps inflate the stock price. This practice is one reason that corporate debt has soared since 1980. The Cantillon effect distorts resource allocation, incentivizing rent-seeking in the financial industry and rewarding non-financial companies for becoming stealth financial firms. 
Profits are quicker and easier in finance than other industries. As a result, many smart, ambitious people go to Wall Street instead of trying to invent useful products or seeking a new source of abundant power, endeavors that don't have as much assurance of a payoff. How different might America be if the incentives were structured to reward the people who put their brain power and energy into those sorts of projects rather than into quantitative trading algorithms and financial derivatives of home mortgages? While the financial industry does well, the manufacturing sector lags. Because of COVID-19, Americans discovered that the United States has very limited capacity to make the personal protective equipment that was in such urgent demand in 2020. We do not manufacture any of the most widely prescribed antibiotics or drugs for heart disease or diabetes, nor any of the chemical precursors required to make them. A close look at other vital industries reveals the same penury. A rare, the rare earth minerals necessary for batteries and electronic screens mostly come from China because we have intentionally shuttered domestic sources or failed to develop them. We're dependent on Taiwan for the computer chips that go into everything from phones to cars to appliances, and broken supply chains in 2021 led to widespread shortages. The list of necessities we import because we've exported our manufacturing base goes on. Financialization of the economy amplifies the resource curse that has come with dollar supremacy. Richard Cantillon described a similar effect when he observed what happened to Spain and Portugal when they acquired large amounts of silver and gold from the New World. The New Wealth raised prices, but it went largely into purchasing imported goods, which ruined the manufacturers of state and led to a general impoverishment. In America today, a fiat currency that serves as the world's reserve is the resource curse that erodes the manufacturing base while the financial sector flourishes. Since the dollar's value was formally disassociated from gold in 1976, it now rests on, economic, on American economic prosperity, political stability, and military supremacy. If these advantages diminish relative to competitors, so will the value of the dollar. The dollar supremacy has also encouraged a debt-based economy. Federal debt as a share of GDP has risen from about 38% in 1970, which, by the way, for those of you who are old enough to remember, everyone was screaming about the fact that it was one-third of the GDP. But that's nothing compared to 2020, in which it is now nearly 140%. Corporate debt has had peaks and troughs over those decades, but each new peak is higher than the last. In the 1970s, total non-financial corporate debt in the United States ranged between 30 and 35% of GDP. It peaked about 43% in 1990, and then at 45% with the dot-com bubble in 2001, and then at slightly higher with the housing bubble in 2008, is now approximately 47%. As asset prices have climbed faster than wages, consumer debt has soared from 43.2% of GDP to over 70%. Excuse me, let me restate that. Consumer debt has soared from 43.2% of gross domestic product in 1970 to over 75% in 2020. Student loan debt has soared even faster in recent years. In 2003, it totaled $240 billion, basically a rounding error by today's standards. But today, in two, or excuse me, but by 2020, the sum had ballooned to six times at lar as large, $1.68 trillion which amounts to around 8% of the gross domestic product. Increases in aggregate debt throughout society are a predictable result of the Cantillon effect in a financialized economy.
Let's run the numbers real quick. 47% corporate debt, 8% for student loans, 140% in the government. Kind of big, isn't it? The Cantillon effect generates big gains for those closest to the money spigot, especially those at the top of the financial industry, while the people furthest away fall behind. Average families find it more difficult to buy a home and maintain a middle-class life. In 90% of U.S. counties today, the median-priced single-family home is unaffordable on the median wage. One of the ways a family tries, a families try to make ends meet is with the promiscuous use of credit. It's one of the reasons why personal and household debt levels have risen across the board. People borrow money to cover the gap between the expectations and reality, hoping that economic growth will soon pull them out of debt, but for many, it's a trap that they can never escape. Another way that families have tried to keep up is by adding a second income. In 2018, over 60% of families were two-income households, up from 30% in 1970. This change is not a result of a simple desire to do wage work outside of the home or of increased opportunities, as we're often told. The reason is it now takes two incomes to support the needs of a middle-class family, whereas 50 years ago, it only required one. As more people entered the labor market, the value of labor declined, setting up a vicious cycle in which a second income can became to be more necessary. China's entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001 put more downward pressure on the value of labor. So women, you don't want to be mom? You'd rather work? You want to keep that lifestyle? Well, you'd be able to keep that lifestyle by getting out of the workforce and you wouldn't even actually have to work for it. What a thought. If you took 50% of the people out of the economy you increase wages by nearly 50%. I don't know the recipe, I'm just saying. <sighs> when people laud the fact that we have so many more two-income families, which by the way, if you're Catholic and you're lauding the fact that we have two-income families, you should be shot. Generally meaning more women working outside the home is evidence that there are so many great opportunities. What they're really doing is retconning something usually done out of economic necessity. Needing twice as much labor to get the same result is the opposite of what happens when productive growth is robust. It also means that the raising of children is increasingly outsourced. That's not an improvement. Another response to stagnant wages is to delay family formation to have fewer and to have fewer children. Who was it? Who was that slapweed? Oh, oh, somebody just said it. Well, an abortion to be able to make it so that you don't have to worry about financial stability. You demon. In 1960, the median age of a first marriage was about 20, 20 and a half years. In 2010, it was approximately 27. In 2020, it was at an all-time high of over 29 years. 
At the same time, the total fertility rate of American women was dropping from 3.65 in 1960 down to 2.1, a little bit below replacement level in the early 1970s. Currently, it hovers around 1.8. Now, some people may look on this approvingly. They're not Catholic. Worried as they are about overpopulation and the impacts of humans on the environment. But when people choose to have few or no children, it's usually not a political choice. It doesn't mean that it's simply a revealed preference, a lower desire for family and children, rather than a reflection of personal challenges or how people view their prospects for the future. Surely it's no coincidence that the shrinking of families has happened at the same time that real wages have stagnated or grown very slowly while the cost of housing, healthcare, and higher education have all soared. Oh, by the way, if you don't get married when you're young, you're not going to be able to have as many children. Now, for guys, I mean, we can continue to crank them out off into, off into the sunset. But for women, once you turn 16, you should be looking for a husband. And you should be looking to keep that husband for at least the next 15 years, for the best of your baby-making years. Because if you wait until age 30, <laughs> let's face it, by age 30, there's not enough left of you for a guy to care. And not enough left of you. I'm not just talking about fertility. Innocence, optimism, hope. By age 30, most of that, well, if you're not married, has been replaced by Jade. It's just that simple. Continuing from the article, the fact that American living standards have broadly stagnated and for some st segments of the population have declined should be cause for real concern for the ruling class. Americans expect e economic mobility and a chance for prosperity. Without it, many believe that the government has failed to deliver on its promises. The Chinese Communist Party is regarded as legitimate by the Chinese people because it has presided over a large, broad, multi-generational rise in living standards. If stagnation or decline in the United States is not addressed effectively, it will threaten the, the legitimacy of governing institutions. By the way, by this point, if you're Catholic, you should be looking at those governing institutions like they're illegitimate anyway. But instead of meeting the challenge head-on, and this is why, America's political and business leaders have pursued policies and strategies that exacerbate the problem. Woke policies in academia, government, and big business have created a stultifying environment that is openly hostile to heterodox views. Witness the response to views on COVID that contradicted official opinion. And all this happens against the backdrop of a destructive fiscal and monetary policies. Low growth, growth and low mobility tend to increase political instability when the legitimacy of the political order is predicated upon opportunity and egalitarianism. One source of national unity has been the understanding that every individual has an equal right to pursue happiness, that a dignified life is well within reach of the average person, and that the possibility of rising higher is open to all. 
When too many people feel they cannot rise, and when even the basics of a middle-class life are difficult to secure, disappointment can breed a sense of injustice that leads to social and political conflict. At first, that conflict acts as a drag on what American society can accomplish. Left unchecked, it will consume energy and resources that could otherwise be put into more productive activities. <coughs> Thwarted personal aspirations are often channeled into politics and zero-sum factional conflict. The rise of identity politics represents a redirection of the frustrations born of broken dreams. But identity politics further divides us into hostile camps. We've already seen increased social unrest lately, and more is likely to follow. High levels of social and political conflict are dangerous for a company, country, that hopes to maintain a popular form of government. Not so long ago, we could find unity in civic institutions, leading to cultural dysphoria, social atomization. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I just, you can tell I'm totally, totally near the end of this article. <clears throat> Not so long ago, we could find unity in civic rituals, and we're encouraged to be proud of our country. Now our history is denigrated in schools and by other sense-making institutions, leading to cultural dysphoria, social atomization, and alienation. In exchange, you can choose your pronouns, which doesn't seem like such a great trade. Just as important as regaining broad-based material prosperity and rising standards of living, or perhaps more important, is unifying the nation around a common understanding of who we Americans are and why we are here. It's interesting. This this article is an important article to understand because you'll notice everything in here, the whole article, was made from a material perspective. It's a bunch of solid arguments. But that last line, finding out who it is that we are, That's not political. That's not material. If you want to stay close to the material world, it's psychological. It's emotional. But who we are is a spiritual, religious question. And the fact is, is that the American religion isn't enough. You want to know why America's in an age of decay? Because for hundreds of years, <clears throat> for the last hundred years, we declared ourselves a Christian nation. We had to declare ourselves a Christian nation because we were walking away from Christianity at the time. But we always declared ourselves a Christian nation. For the previous 100 years, you didn't even actually have to ask if we were a Christian nation. Nobody, <clears throat> nobody said, well, well, America's a Christian nation. Like, you didn't have to make the... You never had to say it. At no point 
did the founding fathers have to make the declaration, we are a Christian nation? Because it didn't, because really, the argument wasn't about whether or not we were a Christian nation. The argument was what kind of Christians we were. And they refused to give in to papalatry. And they refused to give in to that quote-unquote whore of Babylon that they referred to, that they referred in the direction of Rome. They believed they were true Christians. They were the real Christians. They knew better. Which clearly was not the case. It was obviously not the case. I saw something that was very interesting early, early on in the article. It's the reason why I decided to actually read this article. And so we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the article. All the way back to talking about California. <coughs> all about right after World War II. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory was inaugurated in the 1930s by researchers at the California Institute of Technology. One of the founders, Jack Parsons, became a prominent member of an occult sect in the late 1940s, based in Pasadena, that practiced Thelemic magic. Now, if I remember correctly, I believe Jack Parsons was a Rosicrucian. I don't know for sure, but we're going to go ahead and try and find out real quick right now. <clears throat> you know, sometimes I wish people weren't so obvious. From Wikipedia, not typically the place that I want to go for stuff, but when you're looking at a person's background, Jack Parsons, in 1939, following some brief involvement with Marxism, Parsons converted to Thelema, a, the new religious movement founded by English occultist Aleister Crowley. Together with his wife, Helen Northrup, <laughs> Parsons joined the Agape Lodge, the California branch of the Thelemite Ordo Templi Orientis, in 1941. Crowley's bidding, Parsons replaced Wilford Tabert, Talbot Smith as its leader in 1942 and ran the lodge from his mansion on Orange Grove Boulevard. Parsons was expelled from JPL and Aerojet in 44, owing to the Lodge's infamous reputation and, its has, and his hazardous workplace conduct. <clears throat> Let me shorten this right here. Jack Parsons, who, for all intents and purposes, was probably a magnificent engineer, fell into occultism. And that occultism got him dismissed because, well, let's face it, actually, when you look at the picture of Parsons in 1941, it's obvious he was a Satanist. <clears throat> Not terribly surprising. This also would have been the time of Operation Paperclip. <sighs> yeah. This would have been at the time of Oper Operation Paperclip when we would have actually been bringing in Nazis. Lord have mercy. I wish it wasn't so obvious all the time.
Jet Propulsion Laboratory. JPL, JPL, the Skunk Works, Northrop Grumman, McDonnell Douglas, all of these companies. Off on the side, all of these companies basically produce this. It's no surprise that it's Caltech. It's no surprise that it's Berkeley. It's no surprise that this is at the time of the Watts riots and, you know, the anti-war movement. This, it, it's like none of this is actually a surprise. <clears throat> because America was trying to be something, but it was trying to be something without God. As much as you can proclaim yourself to be a Christian nation, the fact is, is that all of these people were trying to be something without God. And of course, we had won the war. We'd liberated Europe, supposedly. And yet all of this, when you look at all of this, it's really kind of remarkable because <clears throat> this whole thing, excuse me, this whole thing, where we're at today is because people continue to scream about injustice. But they didn't just continue to scream about injustice. They were screaming about injustice to a world that really didn't care. They had taken caring out of the world. They surgically removed cha uh, charity from the American identity. Yes, people donate lots and lots of money. But to who? We don't have any mental health facilities like we used to have. We used to have sanitariums and sanatoriums. We used to have mental asylums for the, for the criminally deranged. We used to have these things. Why did we used to have them? Because they were necessary. They weren't just necessary. They were necessary as works of mercy. You couldn't afford to have a lot of these people out in society, but you also shouldn't have put them in prison either because a human being is not an animal. Except when you follow Darwinism and Darwinistic evolution, materialist evolution. Because then the human being is just another animal. It's an animal that, it's an animal, it's a herd animal that occasionally needs to be culled. It's a herd, it's an animal that occasionally needs to be put down. It's an animal, it, it, the human being in a material sense becomes only a mere animal. And rather than actually treating people with the dignity that they deserve as made in the image and likeness of God, instead we inject them full of drugs, we feed them a whole bunch of drugs, and then when they get just too tired of it all, we put them down like a dog. This article, the author of this article, beads in on a lot of things that are happening in the material plane. It is obvious that America is in, is in a period of decay. It is obvious that we are, we are going to die as a nation. But the idea that you're going to rebuild who America is 
without first starting with what man is. Is laughable. When I have conversations, even amongst my own family, where they say, well, that's your truth, and I want to look at them, and no joke, if I wasn't talking to them over the phone, I would slap the jaw off their face. I would slap them so hard, their jaw would physically dislodge from their face. Because that's what you do to liars. Seems extreme, I'd imagine. At least to some people. That's your truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Et verbum caro factum est, et habitavit in novis. This isn't a truth. It's the truth. And it is only through the lens of that truth that any of the other stuff makes sense. So either this country is going to figure it out, quit acting the fool, <clears throat> and turn back to God, or it's going to die. And i got to be perfectly honest with you, given the weapons and the technology and all of the <clears throat> dastardly devices that are spread out across the world, death without divine intervention is really not the best option. Because death might actually equal the total eradication of mankind from the earth. No room for children. Hell, they've already tried. That shot, that mRNA technology, I am still convinced over the course of the next, well, I guess now it's going to be two to three years, we're going to be looking at an excess death rate that's going to go through the roof. People are going to die. It's going to happen. It's not even going to be, we're not talking about, <clears throat> we're talking about a we're talking about an age of death that's going to make the Hall of Demore and the struggle sessions in China and all of the worst things that came to come out of Nazism and Communism, it's going to make them all pale by comparison. Because this toxin was passed around the whole world. More than two-thirds of the global population receive this inoculation. <clears throat> and it's funny because I hear a lot of people, well, I did this because of that and I did that because of this. Well, if you got the jab, 
then you need to pray. Because I'm also convinced that it's only going to be a miracle from God that, you're, that you survive. And so it would be in your best interest to maybe pray and do penance and get yourself ready. Because the early tests of the mRNA technology had a, 100, had a nearly, a statistically, 100% fatality rate. You're talking about five people who survived out of 200,000 in the test. Five people who survived out of 200,000 in the test. Now, maybe they were able to clean it up a bit. Hey, that's cool. Maybe they successfully cleaned it up a bit. Whatever. Cool. I feel awesome. But they would have required to clean it up significantly just to get the survival rate up to 30%. The survival rate would have had to have been 6,000. Not five. And when I say five, you know I don't mean 5,000. The survival rate, <clears throat> heavily cleaned up, would have to have been brought up to to 30%, which would require 6,000 survivors rather than only five survivors. So we'll see. <clears throat> We'll see, because two-thirds of the Earth's population was <clears throat> took this jab. And, wouldn't you know, you can spread the jab by having sex. You may be able to spread the jab by passionate kissing. It is distinctively possible that the vaccination rate for this jab could be statistically 100% in a few years. <clears throat> so that's cool. But everybody who took the jab, and this is kind of the rub, whether you took the jab willingly when they were first rolling it out, or you allowed yourself to be coerced. Excuse me. Whether you took the jab willingly at the beginning, blindly, out of blind faith and fear, or you took the jab because you were coerced, ultimately you made one declaration. That the things that happen in this world, your material benefit outweighs all other considerations. That was at the heart of this jab. That was at the heart of the whole vaccine campaign. That your material that the material world, your material benefit, whether it was to keep from losing your job, whether it was to save your life or even the lives of those around you, even, like, let's just, even if you were altruistic about it, the one consistent declaration of taking that jab for everyone was that your material benefit outweighed everything else. 
unless you think I'm condemning you in some particular way because you took the jab, understand that everyone makes that choice at some point. I don't think St. Padre Pio would have made that choice, but I know that everyone else who's not a heroic saint makes that choice at some point <clears throat> because we're all sinners. And that is actually the core of the sin. Is to turn away from your faith in God and just trusting God that whatever it is that he has in mind for you is the way that you need to go. And rather than trusting him, you went with this. And for those who were Catholic, who had the opportunity at white martyrdom to lose their job because no, they would not comply with this as a matter of faith, I, I don't judge you. I mourn. I mourn because you lost the opportunity at martyrdom. I mean, don't get me wrong, I fled from martyrdom. I left a place where they were eventually going to make the jab mandatory in order to get to a place where, they, where I wasn't going to have to worry about it. And that also came with a pay raise and living in a new place that was much more free and all that other stuff. Like, I mean, I fled the martyrdom because I wasn't going to tell them, I wasn't going to let them tell me, you have to do this. And I will tell you that being in the aviation industry, most of the aviation industry looks at the world from the same way as this guy who wrote this article. At a minimum, he looks at it. Because you'll notice he didn't, talk, he didn't talk about the things that are currently happening. He didn't talk about, he's not, he's literally not talking about anything except what he can see. And what he sees is that we lost a sense of identity and he doesn't really know how to place it because it's in the social area of things. But his entire worldview is a material is a material worldview. It's worthless. It's certainly worthless to do anything other than to diagnose the symptoms of what's been going on in American society for the last 100 years. You'll notice in this, he's illustrating the whole thing and there's not a proposed cure. And if I were to talk to this guy and say, I have the cure for how we fix this, when I told him what it was, he would say, I don't think that's the case. I disagree. That's your truth. At which point I'd have to knock his jaw off his face. See, Every time. Now, you know what? That's a different story. And we're already at an hour and 15 minutes. We're going to go ahead and button this up. Am I surprised to find out that the leading edge of these people, and he totally, like he saw Jack Parsons, and you can look up Jack Parsons. He's in Wikipedia. He saw Jack Parsons and saw the path he went down. And you know what's really funny is that the Mansons were down that same path. And a lot of the people he was talking about in the finance industry, they're in that same path too. As I was reading this article, 
I could not help but get the sense that the entire thing wasn't just a matter of the material world, but most of these people who only, quote-unquote, really only believe in the material, they are a hair's breadth away from being full-on Satanists. Because if you believe in nothing, you'll believe in anything. And the easiest way to believe in anything is to believe lies. We're not getting out of this. There were going to be some supernatural ways. <clears throat> but I got to be perfectly honest with you. As much as I love this nation, as much as I love my people, <clears throat> there's a certain point when you just stop getting the graces. So I'm going to read you the prayer of St. Augustine, written in, uh, who, written in the 4th fourth, uh, fourth or 5th century. But in the, in the Roman Missal that's uh, provided for the Society of St. Pius X, it's headlined as the Prayer for the United States of America. And I would like you to join me in this prayer and just kind of listen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. <clears throat> Before thine eyes, O Lord, we bring our sins, and we compare them with the stripes we have received. If we examine the evil we have wrought, what we suffer is little, and what we deserve is great. What we have committed is very grievous, and what we have suffered very slight. We feel the punishment of sin, yet withdraw not from the obstinacy of sinning. Under thy lash our inconstancy is, vis is visited, but our sinfulness is not changed. Our suffering soul is tormented, but our neck is not bent. Our life groans under sorrow, yet amends not indeed. <clears throat> if you spare us, we correct not our ways. If thou punish, we cannot endure it. In time of correction, we confess our wrongdoing. After thy visitation, we forget that we've wept. If thou stretchest forth thy hand, we promise amendment, and if thou withholdest the sword, we keep not our promise. If thou strikest, we cry out for mercy. If thou sparest, we again provoke thee to strike. Here we are before thee, O Lord, confessedly guilty. We know that unless thou pardon, we shall deservedly perish. Grant then, O Almighty Father, without our deserving it, the pardon we ask, thou who madest out of nothing those who ask thee. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Deal not with us, O Lord, according to our sins, neither reward us according to our iniquities. <clears throat> Now, one of the reasons why I'm, I guess you could say, not in favor of really spending a lot of time praying for God to hold his hand to keep back from striking us, it's not because I want people to be hurt. It's not even because I want our Lord to chastise us. It's not like I could stand in the way of his chastisement and actually endure it. It's because most of us don't ask for mercy. 
The vast majority of people in our country and around the world, they don't believe in mercy. Not really. They don't, they can't believe in mercy because in order to believe in mercy, you'd have to believe in sin. And most people don't believe in that sin is a thing. The word sin, how about seriously, how often do you, like, every time you hear it used, it's as, always as some sort of polemical exaggeration or whatever, or some thing, and it's always <clears throat> generally pointed at the left. It's never pointed at the people on the right. The people on the right forgetting the fact that there are so many sins that we understood were sins to include everything that was outlined in this article. From the banks committing usury on a level that I don't think anybody could have ever, like, I don't think people could have dreamed of this. But from the banks to Hollywood to even the people who are supposed to be building new things and they can't help but fall to Satanism. There are days I have to keep quiet where I don't actually talk about the things I see around the world because when I look around the world, all I see is the damned. People who are willing to choose damnation. They don't care. They want what they want now. Whatever it is. It's usually some petty material thing. When I look around, I see the damned. I think if Father Malachi saw things today, I think he would somehow still be more shocked. Because as bad as things were in the 90s, before he passed away, they're nothing compared to today. Absolutely nothing. <clears throat> and even that which is happening today does not compare to what the saints described. We had saints who would see the future, who would see the condition of the world, and who died from the shock They died from the shock of having seen the condition of the world today. And by the grace of God, we're brought back to life. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand that we still don't, we haven't quite reached, I mean, we're getting there rather quickly. Suicide rates are skyrocketing. But until you get to the point where you can look around and actually envy the dead, we're not there. What was described was that the living will envy the dead. We're not there yet, which means it can still get much, much worse. And if we continue to not repent... If we commit, continue to offend God and not to amend our ways, it's going to get much, much worse. 
And I gotta tell you, I'm actually kind of getting to the point where I really don't want to see it. I'm kind of much more in the come Lord Jesus sort of mode because we're getting to a point now where if God doesn't intervene, we're getting to that point. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Whatever you're doing for prayer and penance, I would say double it, but don't double it. Just step it up a notch. Bit by bit. The goal is heroic Catholicism. That's prayer, that's penance, that's fasting. That's self-mortification in every way possible. We gotta push harder. And we gotta pray that God shortens the time. Shorten the time so we don't get as far gone as we can be. So things don't get as bad as they clearly can be. Because the solution, the thing that everybody, like everybody's looking at all of these problems and they're coming up to the same conclusions, but they're not coming up with the solution because the solution is not material. And that's just a fact. So pray for your nation. Pray for the church. Pray for the hierarchy. Pray for the leaders up at the upper echelons of the hierarchy. Because you want to talk about people who I'd really like to knock the jaws off their face. A lot of them are on that list. Pray for them. This isn't going to stop until we become a, pray- a prayerful people. This isn't going to stop until we become penitential in our nature. Pray, fast, do penance. This is Caleb the Mechanic with rare with Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. Nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.